Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. So today we are talking about demographic data and some of the complexities around that data um, and um, our need to collect even more of it, um, even as um, the way in which we think about identities continues to evolve. Now, AAVMC has a bank of demographic questions that we regularly review to determine whether or not they need to be updated or reworked or entirely reframed. Um, and I love these discussions because they really kind of dig into the complexity of identity, right? Um, we are a whole people. Um, identity can be um, very complex. We know about intersectionality and different types of identities that can be um, marginalized and or oppressed. Um, and so kind of digging into some of these questions about how to kind of reframe them to be more inclusive is really um, a great exercise. I also hate these conversations because as a researcher, nothing neatly fits into a simple variable, which makes analysis that much more challenging. Um, and everyone wants to know what that data point is right then. And you're like, well, let me, I'm going to send you the data, but we need to kind of talk about it. I need to walk you through that data because again, it's not um, as neat and simple as um, the collection of demographic data used to be. And there's also the reality that definitions and standards around the collection of demographic data can actually vary and collecting organizations can be really resistant at times to incorporate data that truly reflects the lived experience is of individuals who submit the data. So just for example, um, uh, uh, IPEDS, which is the um, Department of U.S. Department of Education's Integrated Post-Secondary Education System, IPEDS. This is where you know us researchers go and get all of the um, data about um, higher ed students. Like we can just look all across and kind of do these big meta-analysis, really great database. Um, however, uh, they recently. Uh, it was only recently, like the last academic year, that they created an option for a third gender. And right now they're just calling it other, which, you know, we have feelings about the way that that is, that's just the use of the term other um, or something not listed here. Um, but this creation of this category is notable because up until literally last academic year, there was no mechanism to actually include non-binary students as non-binary students in that database system. Um, colleges and universities were expected to proportion the um, presence of non-binary and trans students um, by the existing binary enrollment of their students. So if you had 60% male, 40% female um, for everyone else that was not non-binary, then you were expected to take and split your non-binary student population by that same proportion and report them in. 
a mess, right? So the good news is that they now have this category for agenda. The bad news is that it only applies to one question and you're still expected to proportion those same students um, back into indivis- in, um, invisibility and the rest of the data set. And so, you know, we're still kind of wrestling with these kinds of things because not only are we um, really trying to find new ways of being inclusive in data collection, but again, systems aren't exactly as flexible as we need them to be. And that's just one example. So while it's really important um, that data gathering be accurate, it can be super challenging to be inclusive and meet the needs of various reporting expectations. And all of this is assuming that you're dealing with a population of individuals who actually reject the notion that that gathering data in the first place is divisive. So (laughs) this is all really messy, (laughs) really, really, really messy. So um, AAVMC is committed to continuing um, to collect a lot of demographic data and to adhering to good principles that allow us to use the data to advance not only our DEI efforts, but other efforts in the profession as well. But real talk, we got to talk about um, the need to address some of these intricacies and these challenges. Um, So my guest today is Dr. Roderick Gilbert. Rod, yay, from PennVet, Chief Diversity and Equity, Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at PennVet. Welcome to the show. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me, Dr. Greenhill. Well, Lisa, thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so today's topic actually came um, out of a um, an email follow up discussion post the big uh, SCOTUS decision of a couple of months ago in terms of how we're thinking about and interpreting um, that decision. Um, and so, before we kind of get into um, the thick of it, uh, Rod, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how'd you end up in vet med? So I am um, goodness a self-proclaimed country boy. So uh, animals were part of uh, our life. Uh, grandparents were farmers, so animal farmers, specifically cattle farmers, but we had others, uh, other other uh, farm animals on, on there. So um, spending a lot of summers in that farm in Forest, Mississippi. Um, I'm a Mississippian. You, y'all won't hear it at first, but every once in a while, I'll get comfortable and you'll hear the twang come out. So just be, be, be prepared. I'll try not to speak fast in the euphemisms. But uh, um, so uh, from Mississippi, uh, University of Southern Mississippi, uh, Jackson State, and um, I have a wife in Boston uh, with the A Fellowship I had. And then um, we moved back here. She uh, moved to Pennsylvania. She's from Pennsylvania. And then just by stance, our career has been uh, academic medicine. So most, most of it with uh, medical schools um, and DEI specifically. And then the opportunity presented itself to join Penn. I uh, have an awesome uh, team uh, of leaders, uh, specifically one leader in particular, Dean Hoffman, who's um, when interviewing with him, it was it was breath, you know, a breath of fresh air that there are people that I was going to work with that I didn't have to explain DEI to. <laughs> so that was awesome, right? So uh, and, not, and not just not just Dean Hoffman, but a lot of folks in the leadership on that leadership team, I don't have to explain these principles to. I can it's helpful because then I can focus on folks in the school. So. Um, but it's been it's been a great journey um, and, and an amazing opportunity to work at Penn to specifically work with this group of folks. So I'm happy. Um, I, everyone in DEI can necessarily say they're happy. I'm happy, so <laughs> I don't take it for granted. You're right. Not everyone <laughs> can say that. This is a tough 
this is a tough gig. It's been a tough gig for forever, but it's, you know, sometimes it's a little bit tougher than, than others. Um, shout out to Dean Hoffman. We were just chatting um, before the show that um, uh, we cannot keep up with his reading list. <laughs> like, he, is, he reads everything. And I'm like, hey, have you heard of this book? Read it already. Yeah. So um, shout out to, to, to Dean Hoffman. Um, so let, let's dig in. What is demographic data for folks that just kind of, you know, don't live in the same world as us. Sure, but it's and it, this goes beyond beyond academia. It's it's about stakeholders, right? How we identify stakeholders. The stakeholders just aren't, you know, the part the people who we deliver a product to. The stakeholders are people who are part of our system that produces the product. Uh, they're the employees, they're the students, they're you know. So uh, in addition to the community, so uh, it's important to identify stakeholders and who they are because that informs us about what the product should look like, how our product should be delivered. Uh, it's kind of a fundamental thing of community engagement. And, you know, mm-hmm. how do you know what you need to give? Uh, how, is, how will it be received? How can you adjust? You know, so in order to do that, we got to know the dimensions of the people we, we, we are dealing with or engaging. And so we look at, if, if you're in DEI, you've probably seen this wheel, I don't know how many times, the Garden Sports and Row Wheel, about the dimensions of the individual, the four dimensions, right? So, mm-hmm. uh and, you know, so we have to take all these traits into account. But like you said earlier, that makes it very difficult because that means all these variables that reflect a person uh, become very expansive. And so the difficulty is figuring out, all right, what specific variables do we need to identify? Uh, I think predominantly we look at things like race, uh, gender, you know, a lot of, we look at some, you know, that's some of the low-hanging fruit, right? But we look at economic status, we look at geography, you know, what community we're going to, where are they at, where are they at? We look at, you know, the place, we look at income levels, we look at all these things, right? Uh, those are more like the immediate ones. And they let us know, like, you know, what are, what, what are we, what, what does this group, what characteristics do this group, does this group possess that are unique that we can say, oh, we can adjust a product or adjust how we are policy to their specific needs or interests. Now, with DEI, we recognize that we haven't done that the same for all groups. Right. Um, or we have explicitly not done or done the opposite for some groups versus other ones. So that's why we, uh, you know, we, we, we track that and make sure, okay, there's, there's some discrepancy there in terms of or there are some negative outcomes as a result or whether we're not getting across to one group, whether there is a dis- disparity being experienced by a group by way of that omission or active yeah. active policy, then we um we say we need to address it and we need to fix it. So which is why um I'll say this carefully, why the Supreme Court case, the recent Supreme Court case ruling was curious mm-hmm. because it sort of flipped on its head what the original decision was attempting to do. So um and I appreciate the spirit of of equity and fairness. Well, I believe their spirit was fairness, not equity, but I appreciate that that's a mission, a goal, or an end game. I believe it was Justice Gorsuch that suggested we need to have an end game. Yeah. Great. Uh, we can we can agree to let's have an end game, but that doesn't mean shut things down and, and let, take an assessment. No, <laughs> we already assessed what the need is. So uh so anyway, um, but I think that's the important uh the important thing is we need to we're identifying, you know, the traits of our stakeholders and again, stakeholders yeah. being students 
employees and the community we present to. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, the decision and we'll talk a little bit off and on, it's kind of threads through the conversation. um, But, you know, the decision is challenging because, you know, um, Roberts has previously said things like Chief Justice Roberts has previously like, hey, the best way to get around, um, you know, like racism is to stop talking about race or to stop collecting data about, you know, these kinds of, and and that ends up being a very common refrain um, that I alluded to. Like, you know, there's lots of people even within VetMed that are like, well, I mean, collecting this data is divisive. And I'm like, okay, but the act of collecting data is actually divisive. (laughs) Well, I mean, the division is pretending. Uh, To me, that's that's the division, pretending like I told you I use euphemisms and metaphors in my country boys. So, but, but you can't, you can't, you know, pretend like you know, it's like when you're hurting cows. You, you can't pretend like one's not drowning in the lake because because your other ones are fine on land. No, that one is drowning. Go get the one out the water. You're responsible for all those cows. And so I think that's a failure. I think sometimes is that we fail to we say all lives matter, but then we don't take. We don't take that creep seriously because, you know, it's like, well, that life is deficient. Let's we right. have the means and the resources to make sure it is sufficient. Right. But right. we say, well, let's not let's pretend like we don't see that life. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, yeah. Go ahead, please. No, no. And, and to, that, that's, I guess, my point. I just feel, you know, we it's sort of a and maybe it could be a defensive response because socially we're about resources. We're, we're keen to understand that if that there isn't, we feel that there aren't enough resources to go around. So we're keen about who gets the resources and resources is a broad word, many, whether it be opportunities, whether it be funds, whether it be access to land, whether it be access to water, access to an admission spot. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're very conscious of who should get resources because we think that we don't have the space for all of them, for everyone to get it. And it's, and so we, two things in that moment, we never ask, well, the folks who should ask do not ask. Who has been given an unfair advantage sincerely? And yeah. what and who are those people? Because if we start to identify those people, we start to see that maybe some of them might find themselves aligned in that category. And then they feel like, okay, I'm the villain in this moment. When in fact, it's not about labeling or casting anyone as the bad guy or good guy or good person or bad person. It's about taking an opportunity to say, hey, this is what's happened. Yeah. This is how it's affected. This is whom is affecting. Let's shift. Yeah. And there is no guilt or blame to be had. It's just telling the truth of what happened, right? So let's let, let's let's fix this. But yeah. instead, I think people are are stuck in a defensive posture because they feel that it will A, cost them a resource that they feel entitled to, or B, uh put them in a place where they might be prosecuted socially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, that's such a great point because I think that it's 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 um, how we use data that is fearful to people. Right. So it's like, no, no, we don't. We're we're not actually it's not actually about collecting the data. It's about what happens after the data, the collected data is reported and interpreted. Right. What does that analysis look like? And there is like already a presumed blame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's right. associated with it and it's like well we already know who's gonna get blamed like no we actually <laughs> don't know <laughs> don't. 
And this is why we need to collect data and, and do these do this research and do this analysis. I also think that folks, um, folks haven't been, uh, folks on that other end of the spectrum have not been given the benefits uh, of why we should do this in terms of the benefit to them. And, yeah. and then I'll just be more frank. So when it comes to racialized white groups, yeah. uh, we, you know, we notice how uh, African-American groups or racialized black groups are not disaggregated. You know, you have blackness is woefully aggregate, just like Asian is aggregate. Yeah. Or, or black, you know, as an ethnicity, like Latino or Latinx is also aggregate. Right. So we, we disaggregate those groups. We see like, OK, there's a difference between Puerto Rican versus Dominican. We see there's a difference between whether it be white Dominican or black Dominican or or, or you know, uh, there's a difference between you know Nigerian versus African American or Nigerian American. There are distinctions to be had. Yeah. Uh, just like, but also in the white racialized white community, there are differences to be had. Uh, yeah. You know the the experience of a person who's third generation Italian versus or first generation Italian versus the difference between a person who's Ukrainian versus a per, the experiences of a person who um, who might be uh, uh, German, you know, or Dutch. I guess is more so for uh, or Scots. And you know, in American, so it's like, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. So, and I think part of that is because we have been, as an American country, we've been so disconnected from our lineages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the exception of the St. Patrick's Day parade, where everyone thinks they're Irish. You know, it's it's we've really been disconnected, and some some of that is also because we're not linear. Uh, if yeah, you're a fifth yeah. or a sixth generation American, you're not linear. You're multi multi ethnic, right? So, yeah. what does that mean? Yes. So yeah. if you were to ask, you know, I would, you know, this isn't academic, I'll, I'll say it's an opinion, but if you were to ask, that, I, I would hedge my bet, that, I would hedge a bet that if you were to ask the average racialized white person what their ethnic lineage is, specifically of the newer generations, they would not be able to tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know I can say that for, you know, some racialized black folks, you know, who may not be able to tell you, but it's like, you know, I, I, I would imagine that's true. And so it's like, because of that, it lends to the credibility. Well, why do we need to do this? We're all just Americans, which is rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we are Americans, but there's more to us. Yes. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny because when we talk about just kind of um, ethnicity and racialized identities and these types of things, um, you know, there is this thirst, I think, that we all have trying to figure out where where we originated, right? There is this this calling that we kind of have of kind of like, where is our, what is our origin story? Now, for some folks, you know, for a lot of Black folks in the U.S., like our origin story, it it technically doesn't start here, but that's probably as far back as we can go. And even then, it's, you know, after a couple of generations, it's kind of shaky. We have to go to property records, right? right. That kind of stuff. And, you know, and so yes. it's just kind of messy. And so there's this whole um, notion, and it's not unique to Black Americans. Otherwise, like, Ancestry and, you know, 23andMe would not be, right. like, rolling in the dough. Yeah, census <laughs> documents pre-1865 get sketchy for us, right? So, right. so uh um I was just in Scotland last week, and historically, we, my family has identified our name as, as as a Jewish surname, only to kind of me get to Scotland. It's like, well, I want to bring stuff around here. <laughs> and I log on. I have an ancestry profile, and I'm like, I hadn't checked it in a long time. And this tells me how much people are longing to get this kind of demographic, kind of ethnic, racial 
um, understanding of their own personal identity is that I went on there, I hadn't been on in a long time. And the more data those companies get, the more likely your DNA profile becomes updated, right? It gets updated. Hadn't checked it in a year. Suddenly I'm 24% Scottish. And I'm like, really? Like, and this is how I find out? <laughs> right. Where did this come from? <laughs> and then I'm also like, wait, I'm not like off to the side Jewish anymore? Like, you know, it's kind of like, again, these are this, this desire to understand who we are is not just happening at that systems level to kind of figure out what we need to um, be and produce for our stakeholders, but it's also a very individualized personal quest as well for a lot of people. Otherwise, the William Wallace movie is going to hit different for you now, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally different. Only different. I'm like, I'm still not eating haggis. No disrespect to my Scottish friends. <laughs> but but that but it illustrates it illustrates my point perfectly. Is you know we we do not know, and it's like it, it adds another wrinkle, you know, in terms of and explains the difficulty and that we're trying to do in terms of identifying dem- demographics because you know folks folks don't know uh, fully, and not as much as they used to. Maybe three or four generations ago, people were pretty clear about where they were, but that also, and uh, that segues, that also segues back to the question of uh, resources and how, how they're guarded. Um, we look at communities, how communities were built, right? Yeah. Uh, and particularly how fierce people were, and I'm being fair, I think that's a very loose term, I'll say fierce, but fierce and how they guarded who could gain access to those communities, right? Mm-hmm. So and for what for why, but also the our lineages, uh, as far as American culture goes, lends credibility to who belongs here, right? Yeah. So if you're, you know, people when, when I was a kid, you hear my parents were fought in the, in the American Revolution, so that which means they belong here, you know, regardless of their immigration status or, but it was also code language that they're white, but you know, it was, you know, it, it, it lends credibility to that, right? So. But which suggests that I'm entitled to these resources because I'm X, Y, Z versus if you're first gen or you're, you know, you're first here, uh, you know, generation. So that lends credibility yeah. that I deserve these resources more than you do. Or if I'm, you know, if you're, you know, if your grandparents didn't fight in all these wars or, you know, if you didn't have this connection to World War II or anything like that, you know, the reason why we have Columbus Day, right, because, you know, Roosevelt felt like, hey, let's, let's let's engender this community to, to, you know, to the American fabric. So we're going to come up with Columbus day and, and then this is going to be how we engender them. Never mind America. Swishy, but we're going to use Christopher Columbus. Right. So, you know, and so that lends credibility to, you know, Hey, we're, we, we, we're here. We belong. We're part of the American fabric and we are, we, we have, we should have access to these opportunities yeah. more so than another group. And so when you present this idea that no, there should be fairness because we've ignored this one group, then it's like, wait a minute, this is part of the American dream. I earned this by default. I should have this. And you're giving this slot to the student, never mind the actual GPA, but giving <laughs> this slot to this student who doesn't look like me, who doesn't fit in the same fabric, yeah. or at least the fabric the same way I do, seems unfair. Yeah. And in actuality, you know, it's, you know, we, we're, we're finally giving them a chance to compete. We're not just giving them a spot. We're, we're not just giving them an opportunity. <laughs> we're making you compete for once. Right. Because you haven't had to. Right. And it's not your fault. You didn't right. write the policy 300, you know, 100 years ago. You weren't born yet. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we need to continue it. 
on your behalf. Right. At right. their expense. So yeah. 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 I mean, and so there is this equity piece. And so, you know, what I'm also hearing, right, is that when we talk about demographic data collection, this conversation is kind of happening silently just under the surface. It's actually not even a conversation. It's just, it's just you know, this is a narrative, one of many narratives that is happening below the surface. Like, well, but if we collect the data, then then we actually have responsibilities, right? right? And and I mean, I'm not trying to be political people. I'm going to give this as an example before anybody gets upset. But like at the beginning of COVID, our former president said, well, why are we testing so much? Because the numbers would not be great. So much, great example. Yes. <laughs> the numbers wouldn't be so high if we weren't testing. And I'm like, but people would still have COVID. Public health experts lost their rabbit mind when they heard him say that. So, yes. Right. But again, it's the same kind of narrative principle where it's like if we don't collect it, then we can continue to kind of shield ourselves away from the ramifications of what the data actually tell us. Right. right. And if we don't collect it, then we can't we're not allowed to ask the question, why is this disparity occurring? Because we have the opportunity to track it. Right. We, we, you know, so it's like it, it's if you don't want the data, then you do want the outcomes. Right. That, that, you want the that, outcomes, that's, right? You can't say but one of those. Say, I don't want this negative outcome, but I don't want to track and follow how it occurs. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a, a positive about data is that it takes it from that individual level and kind of brings it up to this aggregate level so that we can actually study patterns, right? right. So then it's not just about, well, Rod and Lisa are going head to head and celebrity death match, veterinary, <laughs> colon, veterinary medicine, right. the data fight of, of 2023, right? It actually elevates the conversation so that we're not actually, we're still talking about people, but we're talking about groups and we're talking about patterns. So so my question for you, Rod, is how do you use demographic data in your position? So as I'm still collecting it, (laughs) I'm using it to, again, and it goes back to the stakeholder word I use, right? So I want to know what exactly who we are. Uh, As a diversity officer, it's my my responsibility to identify our immutable and our differentiated and shared characteristics, right? So shared characteristics are intersections. Uh, you know, yield mm-hmm. to um, inclusion, but also the including the traits that are different from us. But anyway, so uh, I use this data to help us get a full, complete snapshot, the most accurate snapshot we have. And that informs us about our clients, right? That informs us greatly about our clients and informs us, all right, what, what, how do we, how do we deal with South Philly demographic versus North Philly? You know, you know, how do we deal with, how do we deal with, you know, on a larger scale, how do we deal with, uh, rural Mississippi versus urban Mississippi. How do we deal with all these, you know, groups, um, and what are their specific needs? But also from an employee, from an employer uh, perspective, you know, what are the needs of other folks that are working for us? And that lends itself to efficiency, right? Or you know, folks feeling connected, folks feeling like their needs are met at the job they have, because you know, contrary to popular belief, salary is not sufficient. Salary alone is not sufficient. I mean, <laughs> rephrase that. Folks are like, no, salary is important. No, salary alone is not sufficient. Understanding people's needs, like who is it? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, yeah. Learn. Uh, so you know, understanding what people's needs are and how do we meet them. Uh, understanding what obstacles are in the way socially. Yeah. That will prevent people that prevent you know or or, or serve as an obstacle to you know efficiency or or, or uh, feeling connected to what we do. Uh, 
or yeah. feeling valued or feeling, uh, you know, driven and motivated in, in, in our work. And then from, from the academic side of it, you know, it's understanding, you know, who we admit, you know, we understand, uh, and I don't think the SCOTUS uh, even argued against this, that students benefit from a diverse campus. So it's like if we acknowledge that they benefit from a diverse campus, then we need to understand the full dimensions. And that's not just saying, oh, looking for URVM students, but also we need to understand the full dimensions of the racialized white students. To me, it's a loss. We're only focusing on URVM students in terms of identifying who we are. And we aggregate, like I said earlier, we aggregate when we're like, no, what are, you know, and I, I focus on race, but I even look, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, gender identity and LGBTQIA plus status, you know, a lot of that number is for now to me always going to be flawed because students are afraid to yeah. be out, uh, afraid that they'll be rejected. And it's like, you know, we we want accuracy, but at the same time, how can we be accurate when people are afraid to be themselves? Right. Uh, right. So, right. Uh, you know, th- 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 that can't be, you know, we have to. And I, I'd like to think at Penn that we um, we don't have we at least don't have that much of an obstacle when it comes to that category. I feel like you know, students and faculty feel safe to be out and counted in that regard. But at the same time, you know, we have to be careful with that. So because of the the internal and external stigma. So uh, particularly the internal stigma in terms of making people feel com- uncomfortable or people may not, not mitigating or minding the gap because people are feeling uncomfortable with that. So, but, you know, for me, that's that's an important thing. And I, and I use that to help, you know, map who we are. And that informs how we form policy. Uh, it informs how we uh, make sure that no student gets left behind. It informs how no faculty or staff member feels left out or, or, or you know, and and the same thing for the communities we serve, making sure that we not, then you know, that, that's a dollar, that's a business case right there, imperative right there, you know, making sure that we don't take for granted any person's value or whether it be a dollar they bring in or if they're, they can't bring in a dollar, but at least they're served. That means because yeah, there's a greater imperative for us. It's also, you know, the animals that we love and want to, yeah. you know, have health outcomes with. So um, that helps inform us. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I mean, clearly I, I deal with an enormous amount of data every year, um, but, you know, it is, um, there are a lot of challenges in trying to create um, kind of even virtual spaces in terms of the data collection. Like I'm reliant on colleges to get their their data. Um, universities, colleges and universities um, sometimes, oftentimes now, don't collect data exactly the way that iPads requires them to report it. So they have to go in and do all of this kind of, you know, <laughs> puzzle piecing it and collapsing it. There are ethical issues associated with that. But, you know, to your point of, you know, LGBT um, queer students self-identifying, this is kind of where we see, you know, okay, we're trying to find these patterns. We want to know what this lived experience is like, but the lived experience shapes whether or not they answer that question. And it gets back to, you know, um, one of my favorite writers, James Baldwin, I can't believe what I said, what you say, because I see what you do, Right. right? And so if there's only 10 of us, and you get 10 cases of queer students, like, you're gonna know, I mean, not all of us might be undercover, right? (laughs) And so you're gonna know who they are. And I don't know what that means. Once I actually confirmed this belief for you, I'm not sure how you're gonna treat me. And so, you know, I think that it's really important for our folks to understand the connection 
and the ways in which people approach filling out our surveys and our inquiries um, is based is actually not just based on how they identify, but their lived experience and whether it's um, whether they feel it's okay for them to actually identify in a data set. I, I appreciate at the very least that the Supreme Court did leave the space that they want, they invite students to write and express their lived experience, which case I don't think you can write your lived experience and omit like things like race or gender identity. I mean, that's part of who you are. And I would like to think this generation today, if nothing else, is a little more empowered or, or bold and, and you know, <laughs> bold and not, you know, being afraid to say what the, what's on their mind and what they are, who they've experienced. Uh, Perhaps they're more empowered in how to do it by social media. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, that's, um, you know, I, I think that's a, a benefit that will that I think folks and specifically in admissions departments will see that, you know, when it comes to writing about who you are, I don't think students, you know, they may not be able to fill it out on the application. They may not express it. But we'll be able to glean that data from from those essays uh, about that. Now, of course, uh and that's not sort of so much for who we admit, but also once who for after we admit them, knowing who they are, because that's just as important. Yeah. Um, you know, knowing it. And I don't think an admissions process will fully capture that. Even before the case, I don't think admissions processes capture that fully. That's some things that you learn after you get them there. You yeah. kind of make some estimated, some well-educated guesses, but, you know, you learn more once they're in your doors. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, and I think data collection after the fact is, is very important as well, because uh, if they didn't capture it there, they'll be captured again once they get in, so. Right, right, it gets captured in, in enrollment, right? Right. So, um, Rod, you talked a lot about kind of the base resistance for data, demographic data collection is really about the fear of resplitting resources, right? And um, now, you know, you said that you're, I'm also Southern, I'm not as Southern as you, but I still like metaphors <laughs> myself. I do. And, you know, this is one of those things where I'm like, it's not pie. Like you want, you want a slice of pie. I want the recipe. Like, like you know, and that, that this, this doesn't have to be a zero sum game. Right. Um, and I think that that's really kind of reminding people. I'm like, no, really there's plenty, but it is hard when, you know, we do have income inequality, we have resource inequality, we have all of these things. And guess why we know that we have inequality? The data, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. And so, you know, how do how do we get around that? How do we, how do we meaningfully, frankly, reduce the fear? Because ultimately that's really it, it, what it is. It's a fear of loss. So for those who we have, for those who may be open to being uh, to receiving counsel, receiving alternative ideas, because the reality is there are some folks who are fully, woefully unprogrammable, and when it comes to their position uh, in, in this, there you know, but ten <laughs> <And> toes down. <laughs> All right, I'll look at it. if George Wallace may rest in peace and be convinced otherwise to, to change his stance since anyone so so can many others. Or, or he rests also in peace. Governor, former Governor Mississippi, William Winters, who went from being a staunch, you know, uh, anti-civil rights to in his later years being one of the a great DI leader in the state of Mississippi. So uh, folks can be convinced. But the question, your question is how? So I think um, identifying those who could be, uh, you present the, the you know, the 
the relevance of the importance of how their identities need to be folded. Because I think there is this notion that this is for y'all and not us, or mm-hmm. from the, from the racialized art perspective, this is for them and not us. And so, if it's not for us, if we're not included in the consideration, that we're going to be eliminated from the resource. So the sense of loss has to be first addressed. There's no sense of loss. There's no well. There's no loss. There's a sense of loss, but there is no loss. Yeah. There is no actual loss. Um, and the case that always pops in my mind is the Abigail Fisher case, Abigail versus Fisher versus Texas case, where um, for those who don't know, in summary, uh, Abigail Fisher was a high school student in Texas. Um, in Texas, uh, top ten percent academic performance in Texas get to go to the University of Texas for free. Uh, she was not in the top ten percent, so she had to compete. Uh, she was a legacy. Well, she well, technically she was a legacy. I don't think they have official legacy policy UT, but uh, in that case, she felt that she should have been admitted. She did not make the final cut uh, of the core competitive group of students with the lower GPAs that she was in. Uh, there was only maybe one or two. There were like seventy some odd students who had a, high, uh, a lower GPA than her. All but one of those students was white. She felt that the one or two, the two or three students, excuse me, were white. She felt those two or three students should have been considered over her. So she doesn't go to the University of Texas, but she does go to LSU. Right. So it's kind of like saying I'm mad I don't I don't get Nikes, but I have these Adidas, but I'm still mad about the Nikes. It's like eh, you have nice shoes either way. Stop, you know, what are you complaining about? But her lawsuit was basically centered around her sense of entitlement that she belonged to the University of Texas because she was racialized white and her parents went there. So, and for her, the loss was not being able to realize that entitlement. So for folks who are on the spectrum, understand that there is no loss to be had. You'll still get to go to a vet school if you have the grades, if you have the means, if you have resources. Maybe not the vet school you want to go to, maybe not the employer you want to go to, but just like every other person has had to accept the fact that they don't get every opportunity because they want it. Uh, you get an opportunity if that's yeah. in the cards for you, right? Yeah. Uh, but having to compete with more than folks who look like you is not a loss. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a narrative that we have to get first and foremost, that you are not losing. Uh, yeah. you, and in, yeah. in fact, I'll say not only are you not losing, but we, all of us together, are not losing. Because there's a there's a I versus we, right? So yeah. there's, you know, yeah. you know, we are not losing. You are part of we and we are not losing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a a maturity element that comes with that because I I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I also have, you know, a young adult living in my house. Shout out to my kid. Yes, I'm about to talk about you, but I'm also going to talk about myself. Like, so there's a time in your life when you start working and you get a you you put an application in for a job and then you're like, okay, so looking at my watch and my calendar, they're going to call me by Wednesday. I'll have an interview by Friday and I should be able to start this new job about a week and a half from now. Like, and then like, you don't even get a call for an interview and people are kind of like, well, Okay, but <laughs> what happened? Right. And, right. And so you kind of artificially create this narrative, which then results in loss because the narrative is just that. It's just it's right. a story you literally made up. <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean, and that's you know, and if you take if you take things like race or gender and all this stuff out of it, and you tell a person, hey. You're going to compete with a group of people. You may not get this opportunity, but you'll probably get another opportunity at another place. People can logically understand that, right? 
But it's when you invite these other variables, people start to then like the triggers happen, like the coding kicks in, <laughs> programming kicks in. It's like, well, wait a minute. I shouldn't have, I should have this opportunity, not this person. Or this person shouldn't be considered for this opportunity because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. Never mind the fact that they have been historically excluded because of their X, Y, Z. So, you know, it's, and that they still are being actively excluded in many respects, in many places because of X, Y, Z. So it's like, you know, again, it goes back to the question of loss, the perception of loss. Perception of loss. Yeah. Uh, you know, I you know there were opportunities that I missed out on or, or did not get. Uh, one, there's a community college right around the corner from my right around the way from my house, and I was really hoping I'd get that job, but I didn't get it. And at first, kind of like it stung a little bit, but because I was a finalist. But <laughs> if I took that job, it wouldn't be a pen. <laughs> it's like yeah. how dare I have a sense of entitlement about? But I mean, and everyone—I don't want to offend anyone who's not religious, but I'm a Christian, so. But I don't want to. But the, the notion of blessing isn't just limited to Christianity, right? right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Anyone who is—how dare I get offended by how someone else may be blessed with right. an opportunity, right? Because I didn't get it. Because so that's selfish, right? right. At its because there was something, something else for you, right? Right. There was something else for you, and it's maturity, being open to what life brings to you. Yeah. So, um, so we've talked a bit about kind of the resistance and the fear of loss and the fear of resources and all of these kinds of things. Um, so let's talk about this from the perspective of, of researchers and how increasingly difficult it is to actually gather, to even construct questions <laughs> to actually gather demographic data. And so to give viewers and listeners just one example, we're internally now having a conversation about well, what should what is versus what should be the definition of a first-generation student. Because mm-hmm. it's not what it used to be, right? Like, I mean, family structures are a lot more complex. Kids are being raised by grandparents, aunties, uncles. They're off at boarding school, which that should boarding school should mean like, oh, well, there's a continuing generation, but not necessarily. You know, your pop 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 could hit the lottery, and next thing you know, you're at Exeter. Like, you know, for Jen. Right. We talk students were giving up for adoption at at a later stage. Oh, that was a situation that happened in a school where a student was giving up for adoption at later stage because they didn't. They, their relationship with their parents was harmful, so they moved to a homeless shelter at, a, right. I think they were 16 or 17. So they did not claim their, their parent as, right. you know, so they felt they were first gen, and then there was a whole kerfuffle with that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, but yeah. That, that's I mean, great illustration. I mean, I'm an adoptive parent, and so on paper, my daughter is a continuing gen- generation student, but that is not the lived reality um, for her and students like her. And so, you know, uh, so it's hard. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the word research because uh, in my, I know in human medicine, you know, the disparities exist because people don't ask research questions that identify specific experiences along demographic lines, right? Um, I always, and shout out to Dr. Herman Taylor and uh, Morehouse uh, College of Medicine uh, who created the Jackson Heart Study, which for folks who probably ever heard of the Framingham Heart Study, which is like at the time the biggest cardiology study in the United States and it studied, but it had gaps because it didn't look at variables uh, in terms of social determinants of health and affect cardiac mm-hmm. outcomes for African-Americans. So Dr. Herman Taylor created a Black African-American, excuse me, racialized Black uh, cardiologist created this huge study 
and it opened so many so many eyes to some of the nuances that when it came to addressing uh, racialized Black or African American cardiology needs. So, but that happens also in, in vet medicine. There are so many questions that we need to ask about. You know, when, when we look at the intersection of uh, human health versus animal and he- excuse me and animal health. You know, clients understanding our clients is huge. So there are lots. There's lots of gaps to be filled in terms of research questions addressing. Uh, underrepresented populations, under-resourced populations, historically excluded populations, uh, international populations, because I keep making this U.S. Uh, focus, I mean, we're a much broader group, uh, but, you know, international populations, you know, global populations. So those there are a lot of questions to be filled. A lot of research needs to go in that direction where we focus on those. Funny thing, though, is uh, people who are asking those questions are those who are more inclined to ask it are those who also live those experiences. So naturally, Dr. Herman Taylor, as a racialized Black man, asked a question about African-American cardiology experiences, right? So, you know, we need to find the, the, the next person from Mumbai to talk about Mumbai client experiences or, right. you, know, from, you know, from Ireland to talk about, you know, Scotland to talk about, you know, unique experiences for Scottish clients. Yeah, I'm going to call that my people. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the other thing is, you know, as I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're constantly reevaluating our, our um, some of our questions. Right. And so, for example, um, at, like I'm, I'm always interested and I try to reach out to groups that I know would be impacted. And, um, you know, again, I, you know, I've chatted with Pride BMC on a number of occasions and it's like we want a lot of options. And I'm like. I want that. And I I want that for you. I love that for you. But let me show you this spreadsheet. (laughs) Like, like I don't might not have the capacity to have some of these options. And, you know, I'm reading and I'm constantly studying to try to understand the differences between some of these, because I don't identify in a particular way. And so I'm like, help me understand, okay, so how far off is this versus this? And well, can I put them together? No, no. Okay. I can't put them. Okay. So, you know, and trying to figure out what is the best way to get high quality data so that we can actually get to the patterns and seeing the patterns that we're trying to study is an ongoing challenge, even for the best of us. I think some, and you're right in that um, the getting a complete snapshot is very difficult given the variety of variables, right? I mean, even you look at race, I mean, touching the subject of people who are multiracial and multiethnic, and I don't mean like, you know, you're, you're Hispanic and African-American, which is two ethnicities, but, you know, or Puerto Rican and African-American, that's too, you know, but also what if, you know, you're racialized white, but you have three distinct lineages, one African, you present racialized white, but you have African yeah. history, you know, your, your great-great-grandmother was African-American, or your, but another person was German, another person was, you know, Lithuanian, like, what do you do? What do, what do we say? And so, obviously, Lithuanian is not necessarily a huge demographic, unless you're talking about the NBA, but, you know, for vet medicine, you know, telling the University of Pennsylvania to look for this Lithuanian, you know, uh, uh, ethnicity is like, Needle and haystack, right? Ukrainian, right. not so much. We have a few Ukrainian students, but uh, I would say the need, uh, the point I'm getting at is that institutions need to identify their specific needs uh, uh, based off the history that they have. And that's going to be based on some incomplete data because we haven't always maintained data, right? Which is another reason why we need to keep the data. So uh, start collecting data. But, you know, the needs of 
Royal College uh, in terms of their data collection versus Penn mm-hmm. or Texas A&M or Mississippi State are going to be different. So, uh, you know, historically, Mississippi State, the population is one third African-American. Pretty sure you can say African-Americans is, great, is a pretty good demographic you want to track. Right. right. So right. that that's, you know, uh, so but, you know, for other states, it may be different for Alaska or a school in, in well, uh, trying to think of school, uh, a school that doesn't have a huge uh, African-American population. And, you know, it's not going to be, you know, that may not necessarily be the case in terms of looking for that. But I mean, or, you know, if you have a, a demographic, let's say Colorado, and it's pretty limited in terms of what the demographic is, I fully understand you being narrowly tailored. I'll use that SCOTUS language, narrowly tailored to what you want to right. look right. for. And that's my point. Uh, just, you know, you can ask yourself what's, what are the unique things that very was that we want to look for, uh, you know, and given our history, given what we understand now, you know, in comparison to like historically, we didn't have any LGBTQI folks, QI plus folks identify themselves. Now we do. So we right. continue that track, you know, continue that train to see where we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that that this is um, it, it's complicated. And some of this stuff were also subject to the systems in whatever country we're we're collecting it and the definitions that they're using. Like, so for example, um, you know, what does it mean now to be indigenous, um, a native student yes. here, right? Um, and folks are like, well, you don't look indigenous. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I mean, we need only look at things like, you know, the Senator from Massachusetts. And I mean, you know, Oral, what is the importance of oral histories when it become um, with respect right. to data, right? And how, okay, yeah, you can do some of these DNA tests, but mm, a lot of indigenous people don't participate in the test. So there's not sam- enough samples for right. it to pop up, right? So is that test really valid? Um, right. And in a Western society, we also know that oral histories are not valued at the same, the same way, right? And yet it is a data point. And um, from it a research perspective, it's that's a data point. Oral history is a data point. So, right. you know, this is messy. I mean, there's a, a professor um, who was fired um, at, at a school on the West Coast because and she identified as Cherokee. She's not an enrolled member. Oh, okay, okay. We weren't on the Dawes roll. Okay, well, there are, you know, the Dawes roll, like, again, that's all. Right. Like, whole nother, like, Frankly, white supremacists. <laughs> right. So if you're if you're yeah. if your lineage isn't centered and, and documented as oppressed, then you can't be indigenous. Like yeah. right. So and yet, you know, I'm not sure that when I was growing up and having grandmothers with both with a lot right. of native heritage. And so because I'm presenting as African American, I don't typically disclose that a whole lot. And yet you know, it's still a part of who I am. Um, right. There's a strong oral history, but yeah. it's not, I'm not enrolled. And and so how do you fit these, these data pieces right. into systems that frankly don't value the same kind of data? Right. I, I laugh because, the, well, I, your example is exactly the example I went to in my head, how that's a whole argument within racialized Black communities. Uh, like, well, the my, right, right, the ter- <laughs> Mississippi, Choctaw, and Sioux. Right. So, so, like, you know, you're one of our Blackfoot. I'm like, no. <laughs> well, yes. And, you know, so it's like, you know, how Everybody's do you... Everybody's got a, got a princess grandma. 
that. Right, right. I mean, I, I know I tease my wife a lot because she has, she has Hayes Lodge and you know, their family, they, they have a, a distinct documented uh, connection to uh, indigenous a tribe. But I say, well, you didn't get the knives from the indigenous folks. You got that from the Irish side of the family. So, but at the same time, it's like we, we, you know, it, it's difficult because that's a very much incomplete. So you're going by the, the, the nations in terms of who they say, who they, you know, designate is, you know, belongs to their people. And, and then even within that, uh, you know, we say indigenous, but we don't really allow folks, uh, unless they're Pacific Islander, we don't really let folks stratify, you know, uh, you know, identify specifically because it's not, we assume by way of our documentation that those experiences are all the same. Uh, no, they're not. Uh, the experiences of, you know, of one nation versus another one are not the same. I, I refuse to compare Comanche to Sioux. You know what I mean? So that's, you know, or, or uh, uh, Lenape to Choctaw, like, you know, two different, two different, I mean, there's definitely some experiences in oppression and white supremacy and, and other things. And and for vet medicine, a lot of things in terms of how differently they approach land and agriculture. Yes, yes. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, we're not capturing that difference. And, you know, right. I can say Mississippi State can definitely capture Choctaw and Sioux. Uh, and then we're up here, we can definitely capture Lenape and all that stuff. And, and another in places like Oklahoma, you can definitely capture you know, so many others. So it's, you know, um, L- Lakota and so forth. So I think, you know, the specificity that I'm looking for, I think schools have the individual responsibility to look for that specificity. Yeah, yeah. So again, as we're about to wrap up, hashtag is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it <laughs> but, is it not, but the complexity of it does not mean don't do it. Right. 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 It doesn't mean don't do it. It just means you got to work a little bit harder right. to get to this place where you can actually study systems and kind of understand what's happening. So so as we depart, I got, um, you know, one big question. And if we have time, one one follow up, what is your guidance to organize that med? Um, with respect to demographic data collection, because they are sliding into my emails on a regular uh, so number one, pay your statisticians. <laughs> pay them and hug them. <laughs> pay them and hug them and treat them very nice. I, I say that. Uh, that's that should. <laughs> this video ought to increase the market for statisticians, hopefully. Uh, but uh, that that's a priority. Make sure that because they'll they'll help you. Um, uh, and pay your HR folks because uh, that should work hand in hand. But also. Um, you know, be, don't be afraid, as you mentioned earlier, don't be afraid to go there and, and ask those questions. Who are we? That's the central question. Who are we? Yeah. Um, and encourage and invite people to ask that question for themselves. That's something I, I, I encourage my students when we do onboarding or we have discussions. I kind of try to put as a mantra uh, to all our students to understand who you are. My journey of understanding, which is an ongoing journey, but I'd say it really took on in my 30s when I started to ask questions about who I come from. Uh, and I think there's this perception that that's a minority question only. Well, no, that's a racialized white question as well. And you need, and for the sake of inclusion, you need to be able to answer that question so you can present your whole self to people to be accepted and valued, right? So, but uh, I think in institutions need to be able to ask the question: Who are we? Who are we? And who? What are the? Take those four dimensions and ask: Who are we? And don't be afraid to, and I understand, like, all right, figure out what variables are important to you to understand. Uh, and then of those variables, how specific can you go? Yeah. yeah. And that, that's that's an important question. And then aggregately, present about all of us, but no, we're going to aggregate it. But knowing that you have 
the deeper driven down data that's important to us. So if you need to be able to present that, that's great. Uh, and that's important. So hopefully we'll be able to get there at, at, at that way at Convet. But, uh, you know, other schools, I think, and, you know, other schools across the world, uh, globe, we'll be able to do the same. Yeah. And then um, for the U.S. and recognizing that this decision is U.S. specific, and yet we do recognize that culturally what is happening in the States is not unique to the States, right? This, these, right. these kind of conversations about gender identity, racial identity, ethnic identity, um, income inequality, all these kinds of things are happening happening globally. So my final question is, um, you know, how do you think the SCOTUS decision impacts the way that we will think about and use demographic data? Well, there's more layers to that onion because there's also the the environment that this conversation goes uh that that decision was made was political uh the environment that the states will be handling in will vary politically yeah uh so i mean some states that are getting rid of di offices are clearly not going to be inclined to want to maintain that data right because they are threatened by that information so, or they feel like their constituents are threatened by that information, so they'll tell what they think their constituency wants. So, uh, taking that into account, uh, I think it's, I think um, the future of this is, uh, people, you know, one, we have, the case does not tell us that we can't track data. The case explicitly told us we can't use that information to make an admissions decision. However, we can use many other dimensions to make that to make a decision in terms of who's best who fits our programs, and and more importantly, who we can help develop. Admissions office should be asking, who can we help develop into a uh, a vet? Not how well do they fit? How well do we fit their needs? So mm-hmm. let me be clear about that. But uh, also, when it, it also affects employment decisions, like who best fits what we're trying to do, and how can we help develop them? Because everything should be about developing who we hire or who we who we uh, educate. So, um, but uh, I think that's an important question. Uh, The demographic data doesn't just happen only on the back end. It happens before, during, and after. So, uh, and if we're not uh, inclined or aligned to do that, then we need to catch up. So, uh, and if your institution, and if your institution is feeling like this political pressure, uh, you know, be brave, be bold, and understand that this data is important. And it's not just about people connect this by default and this gamesmanship, but folks have allowed the narrative to connect this to like civil injustice uh, when it's not. It's understanding who we are. That goes beyond civil rights. That's that's a fundamental concept of business. Your stakeholders again. I use that word stakeholders again. It's understanding who we are. Um, so. so I promise I'm going to try to stop asking dissertation questions as my final that's my final question to the show but this topic has just been so juicy and i really really appreciated my conversation with you today roderick so thank you so much always a pleasure always a pleasure always always great um so um i'm gonna take a moment to plug um our two-part uh aavmc uh admissions webinar series we filmed it last year um um, on uh aavmc learn the learn platform is our learning management system. Um, Certainly encourage folks to go check out that webinar um, because I think it's really relevant to um, today's conversation in terms of thinking about um, issues 
around kind of the data needs and kind of also what we do with that data. So um, in that webinar series, my colleagues, um, uh, Dr. Jim Lloyd, former dean at um, University of Florida, Drs. Um, Flo Singh at um, Tufts University, and uh, Dr. Um, Hilda Mejia Brew at Michigan State, we uh, have this two-part webinar. In the first part, we talk about the evidence of bias in um, veterinary school admissions, and we could not do that without what? Demographic data. Um, and so it tells you, so from that, you can also take some time to kind of glean um, what data is important to collect and how we use it to kind of um, explore, frankly, who might not be getting um, the most equitable, inclusive evaluations um, or outcomes, admissions outcomes, rather, um, in this process. Um, and then the second part of that, um, we look at admissions um, policies and practices um, at the collegiate level in a study that um, we did almost two years ago. And so um, certainly check that out on AAVMC Learn, the platform Learn. You can just go to our website. It's right there at the top. And um, with that, this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Again, to my guest, Dr. Gilbert from uh, PennVet, thank you so much again for joining me. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and be sure to follow AAVMC on our, all of our social channels. Um, we will be back soon. And thanks so much.